Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to the Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we're going to be taking a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social and political complexities, and often examine the way that they're covered in mainstream media. On today's show, we're talking about COVID vaccine access and inequality. Much of the discussion about vaccines here at home has been mostly criticism over government purchasing deals and the like. Yet while most of us have been lucky enough to receive our two or more doses, millions of people in large parts of the poorer regions of the world are still waiting to be fully vaccinated. It's easy to look at this widening vaccine gulf as just another trademark of the global inequality that exists in our times. But I think this somewhat minimizes the fact that it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Decisions were made during the pandemic about who would receive vaccines and who would profit from them. Joining us today for the Sunday Dispatch is Peter Maber-Duke. Peter is a director of Public Citizen, an organization fighting corporate power in Washington, D.C., who has written and talked extensively about vaccine inequality and justice. Peter, thank you for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. It's great to be with you. We're going to get into the specifics of things like intellectual property and international laws and governance soon. But to start off, I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of the scope of the crisis faced by what's really a large majority of the world. So, Peter, how bad is this crisis of vaccine inequality at the moment? Well, more than 5 million people have died from COVID-19 so far, most of them after introduction of the first vaccine more than a year ago. And if we account for excess mortality, the deaths ultimately attributable to the pandemic, though not directly caused by COVID, the numbers greater than 10 million may be approaching 20 million people. It's a generational crisis that uh, many communities are not prepared to defend against. And and many countries do not have uh, the resources or, or place in line to secure scarce supplies that have been bought up by by rich countries. So tens of millions of people have been pushed back into poverty, erasing a generation's anti-poverty gains. And those consequences will be with us deep into the future. Uh, I think a generation from now, people will remember, many communities will remember that the world did not come to their aid in this time of greatest need. So it's quite severe. And uh, you know we are seeing as much as vaccine inequity has been a crisis that the world should have woken up to, we're already seeing a repeat of that crisis with what we foresee in terms of availability of supplies to fight Omicron and availability of COVID therapeutics, which are just like the first generation of vaccines being bought up by wealthy countries with a great uncertainty whether there will be much supply at all left for the bulk of the world's population. A lot of this really does come down to issues over intellectual property rights. Obviously, the major vaccines are owned, sold, distributed by these major pharmaceutical companies, you know, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, etc. These are the companies who struck vaccine purchasing deals with governments in the richer nations in the West to ensure supply there, you know, essentially deciding which countries in the world would receive these vaccines and at what time. You know, people will, you know, we will argue and often have argued, you know, these countries 
these companies, sorry, own these patents, the right to sell and market these drugs. They put in the capital to, to develop them themselves. Peter, is this true? And is this a tenable way to vaccinate the world in the face of what's really a global pandemic? The most effective COVID vaccine is NIH Moderna, which stands for National Institutes of Health Moderna. And that's because it was co-developed from the beginning by the publicly funded research uh, institute in the United States, National Institutes of Health. Federal scientists were partners at every step of vaccine development. Uh, separately, federal scientists actually advanced much of the research into coronaviruses in general. If, you know, if we take this back 10, 15 years, we already knew, the world already knew that coronaviruses were a major health threat due to SARS and MERS and that we were likely to face another outbreak. And it was public science, not the science at the pharmaceutical companies that invested 700 million uh, into coronavirus research to improve our understanding of these viruses. Then in the development of the, the vaccine platforms and the highly effective messenger RNA vaccine platform, federal scientists were involved in each stage of that process as well, working hand in hand um, with scientists at Moderna, and indeed, U.S. government uh, owns or co-owns patents uh, related to that technology. Then in the final stage of development, the scale up and scale out from, from sort of an incubator technology to a vaccine produced at scale last year, that project was 99% uh, funded by the public. So this really is the people's vaccine. And that's just one example. All of all the leading vaccine candidates benefit in one way or another from public funding. Pfizer likes to say that it didn't take any money from Operation Warp Speed, but its partner, BioNTech, did take $450 million from the German government to get its technology online. So in each case, the leading vaccine candidates have, as is true of most pharmaceuticals, have been collaborations of uh, public and private science, public and private investment. But the, you know, the devil's deal, the devil's bargain that we have all made is uh, that our governments largely give the pharmaceutical companies the right to exclusively control the technologies once they've been developed and prepared for market. And that has catastrophic consequences in that uh, we are not large, you know, by and large, the public is not determining issues like pricing or sharing or the licensing of technology globally. So instead of an information commons that we could use to accelerate vaccine science and uh, produce at scale as quickly as possible with as many manufacturers around the world as possible, instead we are very much uh, outsourcing the global vaccine response to corporations' profit motive but it means much, much less responsible stewardship. And the companies also have an interest in keeping the technology secret because they want to sell, they want to sell the next product based on similar technology. And so that means they aren't actually maximizing manufacturing possibilities today because they are, they are signing deals with contract manufacturers that will prove safe and lucrative for the company rather than beneficial for the global pandemic response. On this possibility of shared knowledge, more than 100 countries in the global south, including some of the bigger players like South Africa and India, have been fighting for well over a year for a temporary emergency waiver of these property rights. I believe the acronym is called TRIPS, the TRIPS waiver. 
That would allow them to gain vital access to information, allowing them to develop vaccines domestically in their own countries. But governments across the West have routinely, routinely come out against any such waivers. Notably, the European Union and Australia voted against any such suspension. The US seemed to support some sort of waiver back in May last year, but it's unclear how serious they meant it, since they haven't really done anything since then. Peter, why are countries in the West blocking such waivers? It's not like the pharma companies themselves are there in the World Trade Organization, you know, blocking them. So why are these countries doing it? Is it corruption, ideology? Do they not, not just care? What's the reason? I think governments, I think some of the wealthy governments have deeply internalized pharmaceutical company interests as their own uh, and see pharmaceutical companies as, as uh, partners bringing, you know, bringing profits home uh, and, and are largely deferential to this monopoly-based pharmaceutical business model, very hesitant to cross it. And that is a travesty. I mean, a, a generation ago in the context of, of HIV AIDS, the monopoly control of AIDS drugs cost a great many lives. And it was through the advent of generic competition that we were able to fuel the global treatment response that we have today that saved 20 million lives uh, so far. And, you know, we, we hope that governments will have learned some of that lesson, but this reticence to waive even just the, the World Trade Organization's rules, which require countries to adopt these 20-year monopolies on, on pharmaceuticals, it's, um, it's, it's such an obvious thing, you know, that those rules should have been waived on day one of the pandemic. There's, there's no place for worrying about the integrity of a business monopoly while people are dying at this scale with this rapidity. Governments already have under existing law, the ability to share patented medical technology with the world. We don't necessarily have to wait on the World Trade Organization to act and we shouldn't. I remember reading long before Omicron even emerged, um, maybe even before Delta, that the failure of the world to fully vaccinate and leave large areas of the world unvaccinated was running the risk of creating new variants as the virus further adapted and mutated. Surely governments and pharma companies understand this on some level. I mean, are we only going to keep seeing new variants like this if we don't vaccinate the rest of the world? I'm not a, an epidemiologist, but epidemiologists tell us that, yeah, we should expect more variants the longer it takes to, um, to vaccinate everyone and to vaccinate uh, and to give people vaccines that stem transmission. Not all vaccines are equally effective in stemming transmission. So I personally do not expect Omicron to be, to be the last variant that sets us back. Uh, I, I do think that governments and pharmaceutical companies understand and even you know, on, on varying levels care that the world be vaccinated as, as quickly as possible, but it's a problem of, of governance and responsibility and imagination and um, yeah, and some of the sort of soft corruption that, that you're describing. You know, wealthy governments have done small things for the world in terms of you know, small, small dose donations and, and small financing commitments for developing countries, but they primarily see as responsible the protection of their own citizens which has left a massive, massive gap. It means no one has taken responsibility really for, for vaccinating 
for vaccinating the world, not at the kind of scale that would be possible. For example, if we were to think of this as a war mobilization effort, you would see a vastly greater mobilization of resources and technological and, and political capabilities in a short period of time to meet the, to meet the need. And, uh, and we just haven't, you know, we haven't seen that. And I think it will have many of us asking questions about how our systems of governance and corporate responsiveness are, are structured for, um, for a long period of time. Peter Maberduke is Director at Public Citizen. I'm going to link on the programs page on fbiradio.com some of the great research and campaign work that they're doing around global vaccine equality, as well as some links for further reading. Peter, thank you for joining us on the Sunday Dispatch. Thanks.